Welcome to you uh, to this service from Stornoway Free Church. I hope you've had a blessed week and we trust that together we'll know God's blessing together as we worship him this evening. Uh, before we begin the worship, I have a couple of intimations uh, to read out on behalf of the Deacon's Court. I'll just read them as, as they've been given out by the Deacon's Court. First one's to do with the return of the 2021-2021 uh, free will offering envelopes. Uh, at the most recent meeting of the Court, it's agreed that until such time as normal services of worship can resume, a monthly opportunity will be given to return free will offering envelopes. The arrangements for doing so will be the same as on previous occasions and will be as follows. On Thursday 28th January and Saturday 30th January, the Church Hall on Kenneth Street will be open between 2 and 4pm to receive free will offering envelopes. And if you wish to take advantage of this opportunity, you should come along during these times or else arrange for a family member or friend to deliver the envelopes on your behalf. You can also contact your district elder uh, uh, or deacon and arrange a time for one of them to collect the envelopes from your home. Uh, you'll find on arrival at the hall a one-way system in place uh, and uh, so you'll be coming in uh, the main door and leaving through the exit at the far end of the hall. And of course the wearing of face masks is mandatory. Uh, these should be worn while you're inside the hall and also uh, office bearers will be on, on hand to guide you uh, through the various parts of the, the procedure. Uh, finally, hand sanitizers will be available for use at both these doors on the way in and then as you leave as well. And it is important that you use these, but also that you keep the recommended two metre social distancing on your arrival and while you're inside the hall. The second intimation has also to do with a collection. This is for Bethesda, um, Bethesda Hospice in particular. Um, in normal circumstances, a special collection would have been taken at the end of January each year for Bethesda. Uh, due to the current restrictions, the special collection for this year will be taken on Thursday in the days referred to above um, and uh, that's uh, uh, Wednesday 28th January, Saturday the 30th January between 2 and 4 p.m. So that's Wednesday 28th and Saturday the 30th, same dates as for the return of the free will offering envelopes. Um, and again, contributions uh, can be taken to the hall at these times. Now, also, you can send a contribution through by cheque if you can't be there for that. Uh, can send a cheque through to uh, uh, the treasurer, Mr. Murdo McPhail, and if you make that available, um, that will be if you make that uh, cheque out to Bethesda. Uh, sorry, if you make that payable to Stornoway uh, Free Church, but mark the envelope. Uh, Bethesda so that we know it's actually going for that purpose and then send that to Murdo McPhail at 12A Jameson Drive. Okay these are the two uh, intimations uh, prior to the worship. We're going to begin our worship now singing uh, first of all from Psalm 92 uh, in the Scottish Psalter you'll find that page 352 in your psalm books that's the Psalm 92 verses 1 to 4 singing to tune St. Fulbert. To render thanks unto the Lord, it is a comely thing. And to thy name, O thou most high, due praise aloud to sing. Thy loving kindness to show forth when shines the morning light, and to declare thy faithfulness with pleasure every night. Through to the end of verse 4, to render thanks unto the Lord, it is a comely thing. 
to render thanks unto the Lord. It is a comely thing, and to line him, O thou most high, do praise aloud to sing. Thy loving kindness to show for when shines the morning light, and to declare thy faithfulness with pleasure every night. On a ten-stringed instrument upon the psaltery and on the heart with solemn sound and grave sweet melody. For thou, Lord, by thy mighty works hast made my heart bright glad, and I will triumph in the works which by thine hands were made. Let's now read from God's Word. We're reading from the Old Testament firstly. This is in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter uh, 25 and verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 9, that short passage. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And we ask that God uh, will bless to us this portion of his word. Now let's engage in prayer and call upon God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we give thanks as we gather once more in this way in your presence, that we can come before you to bring our worship to you, to bring our praises to you and our petitions and to seek that we give as well as receive from you. Lord, help us, we pray, to give willingly and gladly. And as we have been singing, help us to give our worship today and always with rejoicing. The rejoicing that celebrates your salvation. The fact that you have come to provide for us, uh, for our dilemma as sinners, as saviour, the rich salvation that is so wonderfully represented in your word as a great banquet, a great feast uh, that we are invited to partake of. We thank you, Lord, tonight that we come uh, to share together and to partake 
of this great banquet that we find provided for us through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you for all that is on this great table, the table, the banquet table of your salvation. That we come, O Lord, tonight to taste and to see that God is good and that all who trust in him are blessed. And we give thanks, O Lord, for the variety of fare, of food that is set before us. We bless you that you have brought to us especially those things that answer to our sin, to our guilt and to our, uh, our lostness. We thank you that we can come and taste once more of the wine of your salvation and gladness, uh, of the things that have to do with our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins by you, the righteousness that you provide for us, the, the clothing with which we sit at your table and enjoy the things that you have provided. We thank you too, O Lord, that you have placed before us uh, matters which answer to our sorrows and our pains. We thank you that you have provided against our weeping, against the death that we know of and are so familiar with in our experience as human beings. Lord, we thank you that everything that we require is on this table. We thank you that through the gospel you invite us tonight to come and partake of it. We give thanks that we are able to come in this way, the knowledge that you are waiting for us to receive us gladly, and the knowledge that you welcome us to come and take our place as we receive the things of the gospel. And as we, Lord, come before you tonight, we do come seeking your forgiveness. We have sins to confess. We have transgression, the various ways in which sin is described in your word as they apply to us. Our sin, our demerit, our guilt, our our uh, transgression, our shortcoming. We confess, Lord, all of this in your presence. We confess that it makes us unworthy that you should look upon us, that you have looked upon us in your pity, in your grace. And we thank you, Lord, tonight, that as we carry our confession and make our confession before you of our sin, we meet with that richness of mercy. Uh, we meet with that willingness of God to forgive our sin, to cover our transgression from your sight, to renew within us a heart that is right with yourself, to create within us a clean heart. Lord, cleanse us, we pray, and if we have indeed come to your service tonight and have not been in that proper frame of mind or spirit in the past days or weeks or even months, if we have gone astray from your ways, if we have wandered into the ways of the world, Lord, we pray tonight that you would reclaim us, that you would restore us inwardly, that you would give to us like David of old sought in his great prayer of petition that we find in the Psalms, to create in him a clean heart and to maintain within him a persevering spirit and to join together and to mend the bones that had become broken, the brokenness of heart that he had in his sorrow over sin and of your own hand being upon him to convict him of his sin. We thank you, Lord, for the process that you use in bringing us to be convinced that we are sinners, that we need you, that you have answered our need in the person of your Son. Help us, we pray tonight, O Lord, that we may find your word a means of our encouragement, of our teaching, means of our humbling as well. And we ask that your word may be powerful 
and the experience of all today who heard it. Throughout the world, Lord, we pray that your word will shine powerfully into the darkness of this world, a darkness made all the more heavy by uh, the pandemic that has overtaken the earth. Lord, we pray that the light of hope and of grace from yourself and from your truth will indeed shine into people's hearts, people's homes, people's circumstances, neighbourhoods, nations, governments. Lord, we pray that your word will come indeed to bring us relief and that you would use in your own power, in your own way and time, your power to eradicate uh, this uh, virus from our midst. We give thanks for vaccines, uh, for the means that um, are provided through the skill of those who have provided and produced these. We pray especially for your skill as the great physician and help us to rely not upon human means, however wonderful they are. We give thanks for them. Help us to rely upon yourself, upon your power as our creator, uh, upon the might that is yours and is in your right hand to come and save us, O Lord. We ask tonight especially for those who have specific needs. We pray for those who have lost loved ones uh, during recent times. We pray for our own congregation especially, as we know that there have been some in recent weeks that have lost loved ones, uh, not only through, uh, not necessarily through the COVID virus, but nevertheless uh, have come to experience the death of loved ones in their own uh, family circles. Bless them, we pray, and bless especially, Lord, tonight, uh, Jessie McLeod, uh, as she mourns the passing of her beloved husband, Donnie. Uh, Lord, we pray for her, and we know that uh, she has had such a, an incredibly difficult few weeks with the death of two of her brothers and now her husband. We thank you that your upholding strength is known to her. We pray that she will draw that strength from you through the faith that you have given her. We pray that she and the family will at this time, Lord, know of your own particular blessing for them in their need. And we pray that you bless also, um, Lord, all those tonight who have difficulties in recovering from infection. We pray for murder our deacon as he recovers. And we ask that you would bless him and uh, bring him onwards, we pray, in health, back towards strength. We pray for Helen. We pray for all his loved ones. And we ask that you would bless them, Lord, at this time as they wait upon you and wait for developments. We pray too for those who have to isolate at this time, who have either been in contact with those who have uh, po tested positive or have tested positive themselves. We pray for them and their families. Uh, remember, we pray our Deacon Paul Ferguson as he uh, isolates in, in Aberdeen. We pray for him. We pray that you would bless him at this time, even though we know he's not, uh, uh, that he has not shown any signs of illness yet, Lord. We pray that you would keep it that way for him. Remember Elizabeth and Hannah and Daniel and the family. Uh, grant to them, Lord, that you would be pleased to draw near to them, assure them of your presence. Grant to them, while Paul is uh, having to isolate in this way, uh, that you would grant them your presence and your help. We pray for us too in all our other needs as a congregation. Uh, we thank you for those who uphold your cause through financial giving, uh, through other ways, O oh Lord, in which people give of their time, for Sunday school, for tweenies, for various activities that still take place. We thank you, Lord, for all of that. And we pray that uh, we may come before you at all times with thankful hearts that we have these things among us, 
uh, done by those who are willing and glad to do this service in the interests of your kingdom. We pray too, Lord, that you would lay upon someone's heart the work of church officer as we seek a new church officer. So uh, shortly we pray uh, that you would provide this for us, Lord. We know how important the role is in the working of the congregation. And Lord, we pray that you would bless Donnie as he come, comes to the end of his, his uh, period as church officer. We thank you for all that he has done and for his commitment uh, to this work. And we pray that you would bless him as he relinquishes this office. And now, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless us through this service and in these days in which we find ourselves. Bless again, we pray, our government in, uh, in Edinburgh, in uh, Westminster, and other places in our nation where assemblies uh, have uh, government over the people. We pray that you bless those who have to take decisions. We pray, Lord, that you would, whatever our thoughts may be, of the measures that are recommended to us and required by government. Lord, help us to be wise, we pray, and to realise that these regulations are set out for our good, for our mental and spiritual health, as well as our physical health. And help us as we seek to comply with them, O Lord, that you would, through that itself, bring about better days in association with the vaccines as they're rolled out. O Lord, our God, look upon us, we pray, in your mercy and in your forgiveness, and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness as we bring this before you. We don't deserve, Lord, as a nation to be remembered by you, because we know that we have turned our back on you, that we have elevated practices and beliefs in our land that are offensive to you. Hide your face, we pray, from this our shame, and restore us again to what we should be, and through the gospel we pray that you would restore the years the locusts have eaten, as your word specifies for us. These years that have come to know spiritual wastage in our midst. Lord, have mercy upon us, we pray. And use this time of difficulty and anxiety and restriction for us as a people to realise the things that are of most importance. And especially those things that are eternal and have to do with our salvation. Receive us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, children, uh, I want to just uh, spend a bit of time today and in a few weeks, God willing, for a few weeks, to look at some of the numbers that are used in the Bible. The Bible refers to, uh, in a number of places, a few places, to various numbers that are important in the teaching of the Bible. It's important that we don't stretch out whenever we come across a number in the Bible that we don't think it's always got spiritual significance, but some of them certainly do. For example, the number 12, the number 40, and to, tonight we're looking uh, at the number 7, because the number 7 is important at various places throughout the Bible and teaches us some very important things about God and about what God has done and about ourselves too in our relationship with God. The number seven is used, first of all, uh, in the, at the beginning of the Bible to describe God's creation of the universe. Remember that it describes the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis, describe how God created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the planets, everything that exists in the creation was created by God. And then at the beginning of chapter two of Genesis, we read the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, 
God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He spent six days creating the heavens and the earth, the stars, the planets, then he rested on the seventh day. And that's the pattern that we still follow in the weekly setting out of the days of our week. Because we have the beginning of the week now is the day of rest today, the Sabbath day or the Lord's day as it's become in the New Testament. And is followed by the six days uh, which uh, are open to us for our ordinary work. So that pattern of seven as a complete unit, six days of work and one of rest, or as we have now, one of rest and then six days of work, that goes back to God's, uh, God's own appointment of that in the days of the creation. And it's still, of course, important for us that we look at that pattern as of importance. One of the things that we sadly see in our world that so many, many people don't keep a day of rest, the Lord's Day, such as we're doing by church services, by other things we do to observe the, the Lord's Day as a day that we have more time to think about God, to pray, to praise God, and so on. Sadly, so many people think that they're far too busy to actually observe one day out of seven, so they just go 24-7 at their work, whatever kind of work it is. But of course, the Bible makes it very clear in a lot of places that having a day of rest is not just something that's good for us spiritually. It is that. It's also good for our mental health and for our physical health because our bodies need rest. Our minds need rest. And you as young people, as you grow up, please remember that this pattern of seven is important in your lives as well so that you will give plenty time for rest one day of the week as God has appointed for us. Please don't forget that. Don't let the way you see things in the world lead you to think that you just can't afford to have a Lord's Day of rest. You have to have it for your good and for my good. So there's seven days in the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. But there's also in the Bible the pattern of seven years six years of working the land and one year of rest. You see, when God uh, took Israel into the land of Canaan, after all these years in the desert, and we'll come back to look at the number 40 because they spent 40 years in the desert. But after they went through, uh, the Lord had said to them um, that they would actually have to uh, keep every seventh year as a year of rest for the land. In other words, the land would be worked for six years and then the seventh year, for the good of the land, it would actually have a time of rest. And you find that in, um, uh, in, in the Leviticus chapter 25. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter um, or the passage even. You can uh, read it afterwards. Maybe your parents will help you to read through it from the beginning of chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus. When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath. That means Sabbath means rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath 
to the Lord. So we're not allowed to sow the fields or prune their vineyards or reap what grows of itself or any other thing like that on the seventh year. You had to keep it as a year for rest. Now you might be thinking, well, six years of working and being able to take in the crops and so on. What about that seventh year if it's going to be a whole year without the land being worked, a whole year without crops produced? Where are they going to get their food for that whole year, that seventh year? Well, God, of course, had thought about that. And just to take away any worries that they would have a whole year when food would be scarce, this is what God said in that same chapter. He said that the land would yield its fruit and you would eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. You see how amazing that is? God is saying, I know you might be anxious about the seventh year, what you're going to eat when there's no crops growing, but I'll bless you in the sixth year so that you have enough, not just for the seventh year, but for three years. There's going to be so much produced in the sixth year that it'll be enough for three years after that. What an amazing God. He didn't just say, I'll give you enough for that one year that you won't have crops growing. He said, I'll do more than that. I'll give you enough for three years to spill over even after the year when the land is having its rest. And that, of course, is a reminder to us of how generous God is. Now, you remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 10. It's very easy to remember this verse, John 10, verse 10. And in John 10, verse 10, the end of that verse says, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life. That's his people, all those who are going to be the sheep in his flock. I have come that they might have life and have it the more abundantly. When God gives us life in Jesus Christ, eternal life, he gives it to us in abundance. He gives it to us generously. He doesn't just give our meager rations in our salvation. He gives us our fill. That's why, as we said, and as we'll see in the sermon tonight, uh, the gospel or the salvation of God is described as a great banquet with so many good things on the table spiritually for us. And we're invited to come and take of that plenty. And so there's the number seven. It's there for seven days, going back to creation, there for seven years, thinking of the rest and then the abundance that God was giving for that final year seven when the crops would not be growing. So think tonight of how special God is that he is so willing to give us so much, far more than we deserve. And that's still how God is for us, the God that we can come to and pray to and ask, Lord, fill us abundantly with your generosity. Let's now say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now our second reading is from the Gospel of John. I'm going to look at this passage shortly for a short time. Uh, the Gospel of John at the beginning, chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, uh, reading verses 1 to 11. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, ran out the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I'd like to begin tonight studying some of the miracles that we find in the Gospels, which are fascinating in themselves, but have so much to teach us, uh, not only about Jesus himself, but also about the salvation that God has provided for us in him. And as we look at these miracles in the Gospels, uh, we'll find that they can be divided conveniently, well, we're not going to follow this pattern necessarily, but they can be uh, provide, they can be divided into three uh, types or categories of miracle. There are what are usually called nature miracles, uh, such as this one, when you find uh, something natural turned into diff something different to what it was, here for example water into wine, or take for example the stilling of the storm, as Jesus came and spoke to the, the waves and the wind uh, as they were threatening to overthrow the, the vessel in which he and the disciples were, and there was a great calm. That is one of the nature miracles, miracles that have to do with God, with Jesus' control and sovereignty over the natural world. The second one uh, category is a uh, category of healings. There are many of the miracles in the Bible that have to do with healing people who were ill, some severely ill or disabled, um, so that you find Jesus actually coming and sometimes he'll speak, sometimes he won't say much, but the person that needs to be healed comes to be healed by Jesus. And there's always a remarkable uh, completeness in these healings, so there's no period of recovery as such. When Jesus speaks the word of Jesus, it's power. When he speaks, that word of power goes out and the person comes to be healed, whatever type of illness, whatever type of disease they were suffering from. The third category is, it's an ex an, um, in a sense, it's an extension of the healing miracles, but it has to do with the raisings from the dead of people who were very much dead. 
Um, there are three, in fact, in uh, the Gospels where Jesus raised people who were dead back to life. Um, the daughter of Jairus, uh, the son of the woman who was in a funeral possession to bury her son. Uh, of course, there's also in John's Gospel the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, these three are raisings from the dead and come into the category of miracles. And we will look at some of these uh, as well, God willing, as we go through um, looking at the miracles of Jesus. Now, uh, one or two things just before we actually come to this one tonight, and this is going to be something important to remember in regard to all of the miracles that Jesus performed as they're described. First of all, we are dealing with facts. We're dealing with real events because as it comes from Scripture, the reliability of Scripture is important for us here as in everything else that you come to read of in the Bible and believe from the Bible and its teaching. If you believe in the reliability of Scripture, then one of the things that follows on from that is that when the Gospels tell us that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, that is fact. That's not something that the church invented. That's not something that entered into somebody's mind and put it down in order to actually present Jesus in a good light. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was taken back from the dead, back to life by Jesus. We're dealing with facts. We're dealing with something um, in relation to the reliability of Scripture itself. So we accept as a miracle, secondly, we accept the, the, the whole idea of miracle as it's set out in the gospel narrative. Things that are different to the usual way of working, if you like. All sorts of ways in which theologians have described this um, and in which opponents of, of the miracles have actually sought to find another explanation for them. And if we don't actually accept that they are miraculous in the sense that they are either contrary to the usual laws of nature, for example, people don't rise from the dead, uh, but miraculously Jesus did this um, uh, himself, of course, and also the likes of Lazarus. So we're taking miracle in the usually way, usual way we understand it as Christians, as they're set out in the gospel narrative. Otherwise, we're left with uh, trying to explain, as some people sadly do, trying to explain what we regard as miracles, uh, by unsupernatural explanations. Some people, for example, in commenting on the Gospels, um, will tell you that the feeding of the 5,000 with such a small amount of food to begin with wasn't really literally true. It was something that really uh, expresses how God, how Jesus inspired people to share their meals with one another. Now, that's completely contrary to what you find the Bible actually saying. And the reliability of Scripture is at stake if we don't actually take it to be as it says. As it says, it's a miracle. It was something Jesus worked by his power. It's the presence of the supernatural, the presence of God, the presence of the Creator's power. Now, of course, one final point on this as it comes to mind is this, that the greatest miracle of all is not the raising of Lazarus, but the incarnation of the Son of God. God becoming human. God, through the means that he chose, coming to be born in the person of Jesus Christ through his mother Mary, 
without natural fatherhood. And yet, there he is, a proper, full human being, taking that and joining it to his divinity, to his deity. That's the greatest miracle. That's really the thing upon which the whole gospel is founded. And if we actually believe in the incarnation, we're not going to have a problem believing that God, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If you believe that the Son of God became flesh, as John puts it in John 1.14, that he became a real human being through the way in which the Bible describes it, if you believe that, as I hope we do, it's not going to be a problem believing that Jesus could turn water into wine. That's just, you might say, and I don't want it to sound flippant, but for the Son of God incarnate, that's par for the course. That's something that he could do whenever the occasion arose for him to do it. Are these just preliminary thoughts, um, and we carry that through into these miracles as we come to study them. Now, here in chapter 2 of John, the miracle we find of turning water into wine is one that has the background we read of in the Old Testament, where salvation is represented by a banquet, by uh, the banquet of the kingdom. You find this in other places in the Gospels as well. But you find uh, this uh, description of Isaiah so fitting as a prophecy, uh, as a prefiguring of what Jesus is about, in, not just in turning water into wine, but uh, being here as the, as the Saviour in this world. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. That's the background you find to this particular miracle here. And the two things I want to use just to guide us through it, two headings. Um, first of all, this is a matter of the old having advanced into the new. The old has advanced into the new. Uh, these words, I've carefully chosen them um, because it's not a matter of the old being done away with completely. We're talking here of the Old in the sense of the Old Testament, the old way of God revealing himself through the years of the Old Testament, the old in the sense of anticipating the coming of Jesus, prophesying about it, giving various ways by which that is both described and worked through in the sacrifices, of, for example, of the Old Testament. That is the old. It hasn't completely gone away. It's not something that's discarded as if it's no longer relevant at all, but it has advanced into the new. It is, if you like, has flowed into the greater stream of the New Testament. That's why we find here, first of all, an emphasis on water being turned into wine. I'm not going to deal with the first part there in the first three or four verses there, um, just to say that Jesus was not speaking disrespectfully to his mother when he said, woman, what has this to do uh, with me? What he's doing there is beginning to dissociate himself um, from uh, the ordinary, if you like, the ordinary um, life of human beings, because he is here in the extraordinary sense as the son of God and for a wonderful mission to save sinners. Anyway, he's saying here, uh, verse 6, uh, you can see now that were six water stone jars uh, there, for the Jew uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, he's telling us here 
Now John is telling us these water jars, these huge water jars, you see how much they actually contained, uh, 20 or 30 gallons, and they were for um, the rituals that were associated with part of the Old Testament rituals um, in, in the Old Testament uh, religion that anticipated the coming of Jesus. But that's what they were used for. That's what they were up to now. That's what they were associated with. And that all fits into this magnificent description that John gives us of the old advancing into the new. They're no longer going to be used for the old water of the Old Testament, if you like, or the old system of rituals and sacrifices. That has advanced into the new, into what's represented by the wine in these vessels. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's come to do. That's what he's brought. And if you take, uh, let me just mention this in passing. You can follow it through in much more detail yourselves. But it is an interesting thing, a fascinating thing, and indeed something which really, in a sense, as far as I'm concerned, proves uh, or goes towards the proof of this being the word of God put together under the direction of the Spirit of God. What you find in these chapters 2, 3 and 4 of John is to, has to do with this newness of the old advancing into the new. Because we find here the new wine. We find also in this chapter um, Jesus cleansing the temple. So it's coming towards a new temple. That's what he's saying uh, in verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, there's the wonderful emphasis there of us coming to be in Christ as the new temple, if you like. Uh, although the church, of course, is also important in relation to that. So there's the new wine, there's the new temple. Then chapter 3, there's the new birth. Except a person be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's new birth. And then as you go through uh, to the next chapter, chapter 4, the woman of Samaria, you find Jesus speaking there about new worship. Uh, she has said uh, that um, they belonged in the Old Testament to uh, the descendants of, of Jacob. And uh, uh, Jesus said to her that um, from now on they would be, God would seek those to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not the same type of things that were used in the Old Testament. And then chapter 4 too, it speaks about new water. New water because the well of Jacob represents these things of the Old Testament. That's deliberately spoken of, mentioned in verse 5. Um, and what this woman said to, to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Verse 12. He gave us this well and drank from it himself. Uh, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You see what's happening. The emphasis through these chapters of John is things are moved from the old and it's advanced into the new. The old has now come to flow into the new age, the new age that begins with Jesus himself arriving in the world. And uh, there's all that newness in these chapters that I've mentioned that's worked through the gospel. But then, just to complete this point, when you go to chapter 3, you find a reference to John the Baptist, and then it continues with the, this continues with the banquet or the wedding scene, if you like. 
um, where you find uh, John the Baptist coming uh, to speak about Christ. And in verse 28, you yourselves, he said, bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this my joy is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What is he saying? What is John the Baptist saying there? Well, he's really saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the one God sent ahead of the bridegroom to prepare the way, the forerunner, as we usually refer to him. And he's rejoicing now that the bridegroom has actually come. He has served his role as preparing the way. And now he recedes into the background and Jesus becomes the figure that takes the foreground. Now, a lot of people take this reference, he must increase but I must decrease, as primarily a reference to John the Baptist's own sense of humility. That in comparison or contrast with Jesus, he wants Jesus to have the limelight. He's going to recede as a person himself, personally. He doesn't want the limelight. He's such a humble person. That is true of John the Baptist. But that's not what the verse is teaching us. John is the last of the prophets. He's where the Old Testament overlaps the new. He's where the old has advanced into the new. And as he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, as he represents the Old Testament, this is really what he's saying here in John 3 and verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. Everything I represent, everything I represent as of the old way, of the old preparatory way, of the Old Testament rituals and of the Old Testament, um, uh, uh, the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and so on. I must decrease, they must decrease, they must um, now be giving way to the new. And that's Jesus himself, he must increase. So all of that really is packed into the meaning of what Jesus is, uh, what John is saying here with regard to Jesus turning the water into wine. And it's all summed up, you might say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. So there you have it. The old has advanced into the new, represented by the way that Jesus here turns water into wine. And we stand tonight as a privileged people in the age of the New Testament, the age of fulfillment. You know, we, we sometimes say of ourselves, well, if only we were living back in the days when we had revivals, when people lived during a time of revival, how good would that be? Of course that would be good. And we sometimes think, well, we, would it not be better for us that, uh, would it not be a greater thing if we were back when Jesus was actually walking on the earth physically, when people could see him, when he touched them? Would that not be better than now when we're not able to see him in that way. Well, he himself, of course, actually says that's not the case. Uh, because what he really said um, uh, in another occasion was that uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, as he said in this, uh, in, in chapter 20, to, to, uh, um, as he was dealing there with, with um, uh, the, the uh, way in which uh, Thomas had declined to believe 
the fact of his resurrection and uh, when Thomas eventually came to make his confession that he my, my Lord and my God um, Jesus said to him because you have seen me Thomas you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed friends tonight we have a huge huge privilege we're no longer in the twilight years if you like of the Old Testament or we might say the early time before the dawn when the light is just beginning and increasing somewhat but we still can't see things all that clearly we might say that's the days of the Old Testament prophecies and rituals we're now in the day of Christ the day has arrived the light of the day has come it's come in himself the light of the world has broken over the world of humanity the old has advanced into the new give thanks to God that we have a complete Bible that we have the revelation that's come in Jesus Christ to us that that's now taken place that we're not living in the shadows that we are in the age of the spirit the age of accomplishment that the only thing that needs now to be fulfilled is his second coming that's where God has placed us and let's not mope and mourn as if things really are quite bad compared to the situation that others had take advantage of your privilege take advantage of the fact that you have tasted and continue to taste the new wine that is in Jesus himself that you have been invited to and have taken your place at the gospel banquet where the richness of the food that is in Jesus himself the spiritual fare is set out on the table for you that you have tasted and seen and known that God is good that he is abundant in blessing as we said to the children let's not let our immediate circumstances blind us to these wonderful things that give us so much encouragement even during times of pandemic difficult though they are so the old has advanced into the new from water to wine but there's also an importance here on faith because in verse 11 you find uh, these are the first signs John calls the miracle signs the the first of the signs Jesus did in Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him now that's interesting uh, because for one thing it goes on to speak uh, at uh, near the end of the chapter when he was in Jerusalem many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself or commit himself to them because he knew people he knew what was in them and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man and that brings us something really really precious when you commit yourself to Jesus, when you believe in Christ, when you come to trust in him as your saviour, as the ground of all your hopes, Jesus does something in uh, relation to that. He commits himself to you. He entrusts himself to those who believe in him. Not like those here at the end of chapter 2 who just believed when they saw the miracles. They were going to follow him as a miracle worker. And you see the result of that in chapter 6. Many of them no longer walked with him when the teaching became too difficult, when the demands became um, too much. And Jesus, well, these people didn't commit himself to them, but the corresponding, the other side of that is that he commits himself to those that trust in him. And you know, tonight as a Christian, one of the greatest facts 
in your own life, not just in your experience, but one of the greatest facts about you is the fact that Jesus Christ has committed himself to you. It's not just about our being committed to him in faith, our trusting in him. He has committed himself to us, to all who believe in him. And that's one of the things that you have to remember tonight if you're not converted, if you're not a Christian. You are actually going about in the world trying to manage life without Jesus. Not just without you having taken Jesus to be your saviour and to be your Lord, but without Jesus himself committing himself to you, managing your life. Trust in the Lord, because in that way you'll come to know how vital it is that you know Christ himself and be assured that he has trusted himself to you, that he has committed himself to you. What greater privilege, what greater, uh, what, what greater benefit could there be than to know that tonight God in Jesus Christ has committed himself to your life? to be with you, to be in you, in all your circumstances. And that's what you have when you come to think about the old having advanced into the new. Jesus himself has come to live in the hearts and the souls of his people through his spirit. It's taking us into a whole other area of study. I'm not going to do anything more of that tonight. That's the first thing. The old has advanced into the new. The time has rapidly gone past. And I want to finish by thinking of the best wine has come. You see how this uh, passage goes on? Uh, when the water was drawn from these uh, uh, vessels, and then uh, when those who drew out the water took it to um, the master of the feast, the person who was in charge of the festivities, and he tasted the wine, he called the bridegroom and said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. In other words, what he's saying is the custom is let's get the good wine out first and then people won't notice as much if, if the bad wine or the wine that's not so good it wouldn't be bad wine but the poor wine is served afterwards. But this has been reversed. He's saying you have kept the good wine until now. And what is that really saying to us? Well, it's saying that things are now as it were uh, in advance of the Old Testament, the best wine has actually arrived. The best wine was not in the days of Isaiah 53, wonderful chapter though that is, not in the days of Jeremiah's ministry, not in the days of the Day of Atonement, all the way through the years of the Old Testament, as the Jews, uh, Jewish people kept the Day of Atonement as a representative of the death of Christ. These were not the days of the best wine. This is the day of the best wine, the, the best wine has come because Jesus has come, because the Son of God has been born into this world, because he has died on the cross and risen from the dead and ascended to glory. The best wine is in your cup. And that's why it's such a wonderful thing to celebrate, that God has kept the best wine for our benefit, for the New Testament people, for the New Testament generation. He is serving the new wine that is in Jesus and it kosher tastes, it tastes even better than the old. There was nothing wrong with the old in itself. This is not what the Bible is teaching us. It's not saying that the old had something wrong with it, uh, that God hadn't just given it out in a proper way. What it's saying is that in God's pattern, everything was working towards fulfillment and the fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. 
Now, one of the things that characterizes that new wine is the abundance of it. I mean new wine in the spiritual sense as the, as the miracle represents it. Think again of what it says in the first passage we read. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And here in John chapter 2 you find six water jars and he didn't need, in one sense, if it was nothing, nothing important, he didn't have to tell us just how much they contained, but he does. Why? So that we can conclude from that, that the old advancing into the new, the new that has arrived in Jesus, is abundant in blessing, abundant in life. As John 10, 10 put it, as we mentioned to the children, I have come, said Jesus, that, he might, that they might have life and have it the more abundantly. And you know that's true in your personal experience as well. When you come to know the Lord, when the Lord comes to change your life, when the Lord uh, brings you to know himself, you'll say, well, this is really good. I just, uh, somebody once said, how was it that I kept refusing this, the many times I refused it? Well, that's the way it is. Till God opens our eyes to see the reality of his kingdom, of the new wine, then that's what it'll be like. Till we're born again. And here is um, a personal experience as well. The more you get to know God, the better it becomes. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to leave you without any further sufferings, without really testing you, that uh, once you come to know the Lord, the testings will get gradually less. It usually doesn't work that way at all, but it does work this way, that the more you come to know God as a God who's with you through the testings, who blesses the testings to you, who assures you of his presence through the testings, who assures you that you are indeed one to, which he, to whom he has committed himself, then you actually realize this is better than even when it began with me. And it's going to get better as life goes on because God, God is doing this constantly, showing me himself, the salvation, the banquet, the benefits, the privileges. But there's something even better. There's something even better, at least in the sense in which this that we have now in this world is going to advance into an even better state. And that is when the new wine is aged to perfection, which of course is in heaven itself. That's where the better, the best of all awaits us. What you have now as a Christian is rich. It is full. But heaven exceeds it. And that's the wine of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 9. Blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know, when sitting at the banquet in this life is so good. When you taste of the new wine of the kingdom and you say, that is really such a special thing. What must it be like to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and take in the fair that's there, the spiritual wine that's there, that never runs out, that never gets old, that never needs to be replaced. 
that never needs to advance into something new and something better. There you have it. The old has advanced into the new. The new in Christ that we presently experience will itself run into the new of heaven. Here tonight is your hope as a Christian. Here's the foundation of your hope. The Jesus who did this as a symbol of what he himself had come to do. Or tonight, here's something for you. If you're still not sitting at this table that the gospel provides, please think of what you're missing out on. You know, in this life, sometimes we have functions in the past that we would like to go to and we weren't invited or there just weren't enough spaces. And you said, well, I'd really like to have been at that wedding. I'd really like to have been at that reception. I'd really, I'd have loved to have been at that banquet, to have seen that banquet table, to have taken that wonderful food provided, has shared in that wonderful company, and that there just wasn't enough space or I didn't have an invitation. Here you are tonight, you're getting an invitation to the greatest banquet of all. Make sure your place is not empty. Make sure you, come, you, you, you receive that invitation because it's addressed to you personally. The Son of God has written it in the blood of the cross. And he's saying to you, this is for you. All you have to do is say, yes, I accept it. And it's yours. Let's pray. Lord of God, Bless to us, we pray, your word at this time. Uh, enable us to enjoy the feast that you have provided through the gospel. That feast, O Lord, that we find situated in yourself. In your salvation that is so wonderfully replete with life. Uh, we ask that you will bless your word to us again. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to conclude with uh, another singing. This time we're singing Psalm 98. Uh, that's on uh, page 129, Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3. We'll sing to the tune St. Ethelreda, verses 1 to 3. These four stanzas. Oh, sing a new song to the Lord, for wonders he has done. His right hand and his holy arm, the victory have won. <clears throat> Oh, sing a new song to the Lord, for wonders he has done, his right hand and his holy arm, the victory have won. The Lord declared and made it to be known to all the nations of the world his righteousness is shown his steadfast love and faithfulness he has revealed Remember well the 
covenant he made with them, the house of Israel. And all the nations of the earth have seen what God has done. Our God who brings deliverance by his right hand alone. And now may grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you all for uh, joining with us again in this time of worship. We appreciate your participation and uh, we do trust that the Lord will bless you and keep you and keep you safe as well through these days ahead. So once again, thank you.